You're listening to Her Brilliant Health Radio, episode number four. She used to deliver babies, but now she delivers exceptional wellness for women. Welcome to Her Brilliant Health Radio, where holistic women's health expert and board-certified OBGYN Dr. Kieran Dunstan shares revolutionary insight from leading experts on what you need to know today to treat the root cause of disease, heal, and create the radiant health you've been searching for. Dubbed the gluten-free warrior and the king of glutenology, Dr. Peter Osborne has not only changed thousands of lives at his clinical practice, Origins Healthcare in Sugarland, Texas, by addressing the root cause origin of their disease, but also is a leader in the gluten-free universe with his best-selling book, No Grain, No Pain. Peter is the leading mentor, educator, and trainer of healthcare professionals on gluten sensitivity, allergy, intolerance, and disease, especially as it relates to the creation of disease and pain. I have been referring patients to his revolutionary website, glutenfreesociety.org, as the go-to gluten health issue resource before I had the pleasure of meeting him in person. And when I did meet Peter, I found him to be a magnetic powerhouse of information, inspiration, and intention. In the dedication to his book, he says, when you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. And it is so true for him. Despite his massive contribution to the information available regarding functional medicine, healing, and health optimization, he never seems to break a sweat because It's not work. It's something he loves. He is a true gluten-free warrior and a leader for millions towards a healthy and happy life. Please help me welcome Dr. Peter Osborne. Welcome, Peter. It's so good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's great for you to be here. Um, I want to start with a quote from the beginning of your book that I love by Arthur Schopenhauer. All truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. And third, it is accepted as being self-evident. And I love that because it's so true about gluten sensitivity. And what phase are we in when it comes to gluten sensitivity? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've gone through uh, 15 years ago or so that that ridicule even even for me personally, my journey was a lot of a lot of people distanced themselves from me. They thought I was some type of heretic <laughs> espousing this gluten-free lifestyle. And uh, of course, we've gone through today where now there's a gluten-free aisle in every major grocery store across the United States and in the world. So I think we've, we're at least coming to terms with the fact that there is a reality that gluten sensitivity does exist, that it is a very, very real thing, and that it can very, very much impact a person's health. So I'm happy to have climbed through that fire and come out on the other side. So how did you get to that place before everybody else where you realized that this was a problem? What was your journey to that? You know, my journey, I, I, I can just say thank you to my patients. Um, because I listened, you know, doctor means teacher and teacher means student. And to be a doctor, you have to be a perpetual student. And our teachers are our patients. That's the way I look at it. So when I was in the VA hospital under, under um, an attending physician, it was in the rheumatology department. And we had 
patient after patient after patient coming through the door. And these were veterans. And I'm a veteran of the Air Force. So I look at veterans with a fond place in my heart because they serve their country and they should have the best of the best of the best medical care. And these guys were being just shoved through a system where they were being medicated heavily with steroids and anti-cancer drugs like methotrexate and, you know, and, and immune suppressing medications that contribute to cancer and other problems. And nobody was really spending any time or really caring for these guys. And, and to me, it was very frustrating because as a researcher first, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm what some people would call a bookworm. I love to read. I love to research. You know, I love to apply that research in clinic. And what I found during that time I was in the VA hospital was I found that, look, we were treating autoimmune disease. So if you really fundamentally look at, okay, if this is autoimmune disease, what do we know cause, what, what are the triggers? What do we know that can trigger autoimmune disease? And I found some really compelling research. And one was we had the perfect example for autoimmune disease in the research, which was celiac disease. We knew what caused it. So we knew we had a model already that existed that everyone was just ignoring. Let's just conveniently sweep that model aside because it doesn't fit within the, within the confines of our, of our goggles, right, of our specialization goggles in rheumatology, and that's for the GI docs. But here we are treating all this autoimmunity. So I thought, you know, why don't we look at gluten as, a, as a, at least a foundation for an attempt to do an in-house study? Let's just take 10 or 20 or 30 people, right, really simply. Let me do all the work. I'll walk them through the counseling. I'll walk them through the diet change. And let's just see what the outcome is. And I was promptly told no. And I was promptly told to, to discontinue any of that. But I didn't. Uh, I just kept going. And so the next, the next level of research I, I came across was fasting. Was, you know, the quickest way to put rheumatoid arthritis pain into remission was 48 hours of fasting. And this was very well documented. And it was documented in rheumatological journals. So it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like New York Times or you know, Time Magazine, mm -hmm. this is, these were peer-reviewed medical journals, journals that were documenting, you know, pain reduction, dramatic pain reduction through not eating. So here we have this model of celiac disease and gluten, right? And then we add this other evidence that says that fasting can alleviate pain. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist, right, to put two and two together and say, look, maybe it is the food or maybe it's something in the food, whether it's gluten or not. Let's, let's at least open our eyes and study this. And of course, I was told no, and uh, I got frustrated enough. I left the hospital and started a private practice. One of my very first patients in private practice was a little girl. Her name was Ginger. She was nine years old. She had a terminal diagnosis. Her, her, her rheumatologist sent her home. And, and imagine being a mother or, or a father or a parent, right? Just imagine being told by your child's doctor to go home and plan for their funeral. Because that's what they did to this little girl. They said, go home and plan for your daughter's funeral. She's got no more than six months to live. There's nothing more we can do for her. Now, she had a permanent stent embedded in her arm because she was in and out of the hospital for medication so frequently, and it took less than six months to save her life. In essence, we identified gluten sensitivity in this young girl. We changed her diet, and here, here just recently, she's in her mid-20s. She's, you know, she's gone. She went and played volleyball, and she was involved in sports, and she went on to college, right? This was a terminal little girl who couldn't even crawl around in the floor because her knees were so swollen with pain. So that was my first actual clinical experience in really, really changing fundamentally somebody's outcome to such a great degree that I knew this information was so imperative and so important. It prompted me to, to found glutenfreesociety.org, and it prompted me to write No Grain, No Pain so that people could have this information because it really, really is life-saving.
Right. And I, I think that those of us who practice this type of medicine, functional medicine, when we discover it, the cures are so miraculous, like what you describe with Ginger. And I think you talk about her in your book, um, that it, it's it's life changing. It's life changing for us as clinicians personally. It's life-changing for our families professionally, and it's life-changing for our patients. Uh, And I know that a lot of people inside the mainstream medical establishment kind of look at us and think we're we're a little nuts. Like you said, you were kind of on the fringe years ago. Um, I I still think that there, there is a lot of ignorance and misunderstanding about gluten sensitivity, exactly what it is, how you diagnose it. Is it a real thing? How do you know if you have it? Um, I love your book because you really just lay it out from beginning to end and you go into all the details about all the different grains and what it is and how you test for it. So I really like for the podcast to be very practical for people. So people listening, they hear the story about ginger, maybe they're that ill, maybe they have a family member that's that ill, maybe they're not, maybe they just have those garden variety symptoms that a lot of women have, especially at midlife, tired, weight gain, a little arthritis, little memory problems, things like that. So can you talk to us about someone listening? How would you know you have a problem? Why would you suspect it? And then what would you do about it? Because I know what's going to happen is a lot of people go to their regular doctor and say, oh, I think I have gluten sensitivity. And they're told, oh, no, you don't. There's no such thing. So talk to us about that. So, I mean, some people will promote or will say, look, just do an elimination diet. And I I don't discourage that. I think doing an elimination diet and paying attention to how you feel, it's just a smart thing to do. Mm -hmm. However, doing an elimination diet is not going to tell you whether or not you're gluten sensitive because the grain of today's world is not the grain of of our forefathers' world. And so you may omit grain from your diet in an elimination diet and feel better, but you won't know why you're feeling better. Are you really gluten sensitive? Or is it the pesticide in the grain? Or is it the mold? Or is it the mycotoxin? Or is it the genetic hybridization? Or is it the omega-6, omega-3 abnormal ratio of fats? You know, there's all different kinds of reasons why a person might feel better going on a grain-free diet or a Mm -hmm. gluten-free diet. And we want to really understand what those reasons are because we don't want to restrict food if we don't have to restrict food. We don't want to restrict more than what we need to. Mm -hmm. So you can do an elimination diet and you can pay good attention to how food makes you feel. And that's just a smart thing to do as a person who you are the caretaker of yourself, right? So that, that's an important thing. But if you really want to know whether going gluten-free is the right move, genetic testing is really where it's at. Mm-hmm. Genetic, Because understand that gluten sensitivity is not a disease. And a lot of people get this wrong. That's why when the GI doctors test for celiac disease and they have somebody that, that is negative on the result, and then they say, oh, you can eat all the gluten you want. They're not testing that person for gluten sensitivity. They're testing that person for a very, very specific type of disease that gluten can cause and understand that gluten sensitivity is not a disease. It's a state of genetics. Either you have the genes and when you eat gluten, you activate these genes to produce inflammation or you don't have these genes, these gene patterns. So so testing these gene patterns lets you know, should you really truly avoid gluten on a permanent basis? forever, right? As opposed to, am I going to try this diet for four weeks or six weeks, lose some weight, feel better, and then kind of gradually go down that slippery slope Mm -hmm. of reintroducing it back into my life and then slowly feeling worse again. So I'm a big believer in testing, not guessing. That's one, it's it's another reason why we created Gluten-Free Society's foundation is, is we wanted to offer up the ability for somebody to get genetic testing done 
when their doctors refused to do it where they didn't need a doctor's order. So they could just go get the testing done. And if they have the genes, then they can make that decision. Look, I have the genes. It's my choice. I can either knowingly continue to eat gluten, even though I have these genes that are going to create an inflammatory response when I eat gluten, or I can say, look, I've got this great information. I'm going to take action on it. And I can really justify the learning curve, which is 12 weeks minimum of going on a gluten grain-free diet. It's a learning curve. You don't just commit for two weeks because in two weeks you won't have learned enough about it to be doing everything right. You'll just be kind of getting into it. It really takes about three months to dial it in and really, really have a good knowledge base where you're not making mistakes every day. And, and I think it's important for people listening to know, I find with elimination diets too, that when people come to me and they say, oh, I stopped eating gluten for a month or even sometimes three months and it didn't really do anything, that generally you don't just have one food sensitivity. It's kind of like ants. There's never one ant. There's always a thousand. <laughs> um, so usually you have multiple foods that you're sensitive to. Dairy is usually one of them too, soy, corn, things like that. Um, and so what happens? happens is that these symptoms become masked. That's what we call it, masked. So that unless you remove all of the foods you're sensitive to, you're really not going to know a difference. So that's important for anyone listening to know. And I love testing also. And I kind of started doing DQ2 and 8 testing years ago before it was cool. And people kind of like, what do I do with this? Um, but talk about the, the specific test because there's the DQ2 and 8. I know there's the wheat zoomer talk about that. So how do you like to test? Do you like the DQ2 and 8? Well, I go deeper than DQ2 okay. and 8. Mm -hmm. um, so there's alpha 1 and beta 1, HLA DQ alpha 1 and HLA DQ beta mm -hmm. 1 genes. Um, they're on chromosome 6. And these genes represent the basic blueprint for building an antenna that sticks off the surface of the immune cells. And this antenna is called an HLA DQ mm -hmm. antenna or a human leukocyte antigen DQ antenna. Mm -hmm. That's why we say HLA DQ because it's easier to remember, right? But, right. but this antenna's job is it, it's, it's to look for and identify things that the body doesn't like, okay? And then present those things to the immune system for proper basic housekeeping. So if, you're, if, you're, if your receptors are gluten-sensitive receptors or your antennas are gluten-sensitive <laughs> antennas, when they come into contact with gluten – they're going to grab onto that gluten. They're going to present that gluten to the immune system. And the immune system is going to say, bad guy, let's create a bomb to get rid of the bad guy. And that, that mm -hmm. bomb could be an antibody. That bomb could be chemicals, inflammatory chemicals like interferon gamma or TNF alpha. So it, it depends on the person. So there's HLA-DQ2 and there's HLA-DQ8, which mm -hmm. are the genes that are present in 99% of all celiacs. And those are very much gluten-sensitive gene patterns. But there's also HLA-DQ1 and HLA-DQ3, which are also subsets of gluten-sensitive gene patterns. So I'm looking for, there's a variety of different gene pattern subsets, and we're looking at all of the alleles, not just the SNPs, which, you know, like 23andMe and some of the other genetic platforms out there will measure. And if you have DQ2 or DQ8, they'll tell you you do. But if you don't have two or eight, they'll tell you you don't, but if you have one or three and you don't know that you have one or three because the test didn't tell you whether you had one or mm -hmm. three, then you're missing a lot of that information that could otherwise be telling you that going gluten-free is the right move for you. As far as some of the other lab tests are concerned, mm -hmm. um, there's Wheat Zoomer, there's Cyrex Labs, there's, mm -hmm. you know, there's IgG, IgA, IgM, and IgE testing for allergies that a lot of doctors will run 
And the problem with those, if we look at what gluten is, gluten is not a singular protein. Most people think about gluten and what they're really referring to, the FDA, what the FDA is referring to is a protein called alpha gliadin, which is one type of gluten found in wheat, barley, and rye. But we've discovered close to a thousand different forms of gluten and alpha gliadin is only one. A group of researchers in Australia in 2010 discovered 400 new glutens and 40 of them were more toxic than alpha gliadin. So if that, that gives you any idea. So some of these labs that are more progressive that are measuring for some of these other forms of gluten, I think the most progressive lab is only measuring for 13 different forms of gluten. I just said there's almost a thousand. So there is, in my opinion, there's no lab that's out there that's measuring for antibodies that's progressive enough that's going to catch all of them. And that's where genetic testing becomes the gold standard. And even Mayo Clinic is now they, they actually followed suit very quickly after I started talking about genetic testing. They actually followed suit, and now they run genetic testing on all of their suspected non-celiac gluten-sensitive individuals. And, uh, and again, that's why I recommend it. That's not why I recommend it as a gold mm-hmm. standard, but I recommend it as a gold standard because if a person has immunodeficiency or immunosuppression, and many people with gluten sensitivity do, and you use their immune system to test them for immune reactions, you could get a lot of false negative because their immune system is just weak. It's in a weakened state and they, they don't have enough immune power to really show up on a positive or have a test result come back positive. So genetics don't lie. You either have those gene patterns or you don't. If you do, we're not saying that you have illness. If you do, we're saying that if you want to prevent illness from chronic inflammation as a result of exposure to gluten, then you'll cut that out of your diet and you'll quiet those genes down. You'll silence those mm-hmm. genes. They won't be as active. So we don't change the genes we have, but we alter their behavior. So what about, is there a subset of people who are genetically negative who also have a sensitivity? Not to my knowledge. Um, You know, could there be other genes that play a role in the reaction to gluten? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're still in the infancy of understanding genetics and and human genetics is only part of it. There's also the microbiome genetics that Mm -hmm. uh, that we're just tapping into. And there's a lot that we're learning that, you know, abnormal microbiomes can make a person more susceptible to gluten. But understand Mm -hmm. there's gluten sensitivity, then there's gluten allergy, then there's gluten intolerance. And what are all these different words mean? They don't all mean the same thing. They're not synonyms. So a lot of people have an intolerance to the protein gluten. That's not the same thing as having an immune response. And intolerance means that they eat it. They don't have the the digestive capacity to break the protein down. So then that protein now has the ability to break their gut down and create, basically create a bacterial imbalance. And that's what happens for a lot of people. Again, it's not the same thing as gluten sensitivity. It's a gluten intolerance. And that intolerance is very, very different because it's a non-immune mediated response. And that's why a lot of doctors are so confused on this because they go looking for an immune response and they don't Mm -hmm. find it. So then they tell their, they tell their patients, eat all the gluten that you want. Right. So you have the intolerance, you have the allergy and you have the sensitivity and then you have the disease, which is celiac. Um, And then you can also have other effects uh, like from the pesticides used with wheat, the glyphosate. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So glyphosate is Mm -hmm. not safe. I don't care what anyone says. Um, (laughs) You know, the the studies that were done were all short-term animal studies, not long-term human studies. You people watching this show are the long-term human studies, and that's what we're finding out. We're finding out that glyphosate increases autoimmune risk. Glyphosate creates leaky gut and intestinal permeability. Glyphosate causes microbiome imbalances. Glyphosate glyphosate binds 
metals. It was actually its original function was as a metal chelator before it was known as a pesticide. It's it's its capacity to bind minerals that kill plants. And so it binds the minerals in humans just as effectively. And glyphosate also interferes with something called the shikimate pathway, which is a pathway that leads to serotonin production. Understand that 90% of our serotonin is made in our GI tract. And when you're eating a lot of glyphosate, you're disrupting your serotonin. This is where a lot of the IBS, the irritable bowel syndrome, because mm-hmm. serotonin is very, very important for bowel motility and bowel function, not just brain function. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for everybody listening. If you're thinking I, I might have this, yes, you want to get genetic testing, but you may want to also get some of these antibody tests that Dr. Osborne has talked about to see if there is, is an immune or allergic response. Uh, and then also you have to consider about that you could be responding to the pesticides or that you have an intolerance. So I, I just want to ask you the question because there's some doctors who really believe that everybody should be off all grains. Are you in that camp? No. Okay. No. And I'm open to the scientific debate of proving me wrong. I mean, I wrote no grain, mm-hmm. no pain. And I, look, I'm a scientist first. Right. Um, I'm always open to my ideas and my theories and my and my um, my clinical observations being either wrong altogether or being not what I think they are. So you know, the reality is we all experience life through our own goggles, through the goggles of our personal selves, right? Mm-hmm. And our experiences are our experiences. And so a lot of what I write about is clinical, but also I also embed that with research. I have 32 pages of literature. Um, over 300 references in No Grain, No Pain, because it's, it's also science. So part of it is science, and part of it is clinical observation and what people would refer to as anecdote, right? And anecdote, in my opinion, is the ultimate research, because it doesn't matter mm-hmm. what happens in a study of 10,000 people. It only matters what happens to the person that's sitting across the desk from you. But ultimately, is everyone gluten sensitive? No, I don't think so. Um, are many people gluten sensitive? Absolutely. That I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I don't think, mm-hmm. I don't think time and science will ever prove me wrong there, but I don't know that we could, that we could make the claim that everybody in the world should be grain free. I think more than anything, I think we have to look at what we do to our grain aside from pesticides and genetic hybridization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way we grow mass quantities and scale that growth with Matt, with, uh, with mainstream farming it contaminates our grain with mold and it contaminates it with mycotoxins. Part of the way we, we process breads and cereals, what do we do? We fortify them with synthetic vitamins that aren't really all that good for us. We add things like bromine to condition the grain and that bromine is a thyroid disruptor. We add other chemical elements like hydrogenated fats and sugars to these grain-based products. So it's, you know, it's part of it is definitely the gluten for some people, but for many other people, it's the way they're eating it too. It's, it's the other things that we do in the processing component of these grains that is just not good for human health, but we've converted grain into a predominant staple food in the United States. So if you look at the average American's caloric intake, it's between 70% and 80% grain-based. And there's never been a time in our history or in our culture where we've seen human caloric intake be predominantly one food group, especially a food like grain. And, 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 I'll, and, I'll, and I'll say this too, understand what grain is. Grain is a seed, particularly grain is you know, the family of seeds of grass. So if it grows as a grass, it has a seed. That's what grain is. So there's wheat, grass and barley and rye and oat and corn and rice and sorghum mm-hmm. and millet and taff and 
all these different forms of, of grain seeds, right? What are seeds designed to do? What did God give seeds the ability to do? Well, he didn't give them arms and legs, so they can't run away and they can't scream when something's trying to eat them into, you know, into extinction. Mm-hmm. But he did give them chemicals, chemicals that help protect and preserve their own species. So when we look at what a seed is, it's a vesicle that harbors the life and potentiates its species. It's a very, very important job. Mm-hmm. And when we study some of the things that are in seeds, not just grain seeds either, apple seeds contain cyanide poisoning, mm-hmm. peach bits contain cyanide poisoning, mm-hmm. certain seeds contain arsenic, right? So we have known human poisons within seeds. So if you take, your, if you take seed and you make it 80% of your diet, there's enough poison in those seeds that over time that poison is going to affect your gut in a way that your gut can't continue to win that war for you. And your health starts to break down as a result of that. And that is not gluten sensitivity. That is seed toxicity. And it's a very, very different thing. So again, when I say no grain, no pain, I didn't say no gluten, no pain, because it's not just gluten. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important. That's a great point that you bring up that everybody listening understand what Dr. Osborne is talking about, that the seeds don't have arms and legs. So the seeds intention is to continue its species and it has to get from one place to another to be planted. And it does that by animals ingesting it and then carrying it to these other locations and pooping it out. So by nature, a seed is designed to resist digestion, resist the, uh, the, the attempts at breaking it down in an animal's gastrointestinal tract and propagate the species somewhere else. So I love that, that you bring that up. And I love that your book is about pain because our diet is now predominantly grain. And what's the number one complaint in doctor's offices? pain. And so you've really linked our diet to our symptomatology and number one prescriptions are for pain also. And you've clearly kind of placed the problems in our medical system in the lap of what we're eating. So talk about the grain inflammation and the the grain obesity and the issues that it causes in our body. Yeah. So when somebody's, when somebody's consuming foods that are highly inflammatory, every day as a staple in the diet, what that does is that increases the output of a couple of hormones. With grain particularly, we, we make more insulin because it's very, very high as far as stimulating insulin. It's, it's a glucose-based food. So it will overproduce insulin or cause us to. And then it also causes us, through the inflammatory cascade, causes us to produce cortisol. Now, cortisol is the hormone that we use to fight inflammation. We all have adrenal glands. And our adrenal glands put out cortisol to put out fires. Um, We're all exposed every day on a daily basis to inflammation. Inflammation itself is not bad. It's chronic excessive inflammation that causes our body to respond by overproducing cortisol. And just like if you were to get a corticosteroid from a doctor and either get an injection or an oral pill for pain, you know what happens? People puff out. They retain water. They gain weight. They start losing muscle. If you start taking cortisol chronically, it causes mm-hmm. muscle and bone breakdown. So we're talking about the grain inflammation cycle, which is too much grain elevates cortisol. Cortisol causes you to lose your mo- muscle and bone. And so now your metabolism goes down because when your muscles shrink and when your muscles atrophy, muscles set the metabolic rate of your body. So now your metabolism burns slower. So now the same quantity of calories leads to more weight gain. But the muscle loss also leads to more weight gain. And 
when the muscles shorten, muscles are, think of them like rubber bands. They cross your joints. And so if those, those rubber bands are too tight or too short, they cause grinding between your cartilage. So now your cartilage is grinding and it's wearing away quicker. And so now not only can that grain create an inflammation and a pain that is inflammatory, but then the muscle atrophy can create an osteoarthritis or a wear and tear based arthritis Mm -hmm. that tells a person or that causes a person to want to stop moving because they hurt, right? When people hurt, they don't want to get up and exercise. So that we get stuck in the cycle. The grain creates the inflammation, creates the elevation in cortisol, creates the muscle loss. The muscle loss creates muscle shortening. Muscle shortening creates more pressure on the joint. More pressure on the joint creates more pain and friction and wear and tear. That leads to lack of activity. Lack of activity leads to weight gain and continued degradation and atrophy of the human frame. And we're Mm -hmm. stuck in the cycle. Where do we get out of the cycle? We got to recognize that the cycle exists. And the first step is is eliminating the, the inflammation. It's eliminating the inflammation, not through pharmaceutical means. It's eliminating the inflammation through diet and through lifestyle change. And that comes with couple different things. One, common sense, meaning you've got to look in the mirror and do your own part. You can't just say, oh, I want the magic supplement to make my pain go away. I want the magic cannabinoid oil to make my pain go away. These things can be used and they can be helpful. But Mm -hmm. the reality is, is if you're using passive therapies, if if you're expecting other things to do the work and not you, then you're going to be sorely disappointed in the outcome. So, so again, all forward progress starts with brutal truth. Look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, what is it that you're currently doing that's creating or helping your pain stay, right? And what is it that you could change about your life or what is it that you could learn to change about your life that would empower you to not need those passive therapies? Because ultimately at the end of the day, our job as doctors, this is my true belief, is our job as doctors is to fire everyone who comes in the door. It should not be an ongoing relationship that's indefinite it should be a point where we say goodbye, or at the very least, we say goodbye to the disease. And if we do have a relationship as we move forward, it's a relationship of prevention or continued education and not a relationship of disease mm-hmm. management. Right. And I, and I love how you put that. And that's what I really want people to get who are listening is you don't want to go to the doctor and they're just treating your disease with pain medicines. And Dr. Osborne does a wonderful job in his book of showing the cycle of when you add the, the different types of pain medicines for these issues that you go to the doctor for what the propagation of these symptoms is. But we as physicians who are really outside the box, our goal is to treat you as a human being. And exactly like he said, we want to fire you. Uh, Not that we don't love you. It's that we do love you and we want you to get better and not need us anymore. So that means kind of putting the personal responsibility back on you for making different choices. And I know it's hard because there are a lot there's a lot of information out there there's a lot of misinformation out there and so I always say that I believe people really are very intelligent and more intelligent than most medical professionals give them and really credit for and really do want to make changes but you need the right information You need knowledge, information, and tools. That's the power. That's what I always say. So you want to listen to people like Dr. Osborne and get his book and read it because it tells you very clearly what the issue is, how to know if you have an issue. And then you want to follow what he says. He gives a great 30-day plan in there that's very comprehensive. And he has also a free download for you, which I'm going to put uh, the in the show notes so that you can go to his website and, and get it. He has a video and a free ebook 
specifically about leaky gut, which is a problem that you can have from grains. Uh, you can have it from other reasons too, but grains primarily. So yes, we want to fire you. <laughs> <laughs> ultimately. And one of the topics that's near and dear to my heart is overweight and obesity. And I, one of the first things I do when I work with people is I get them off grains. So can you talk specifically about how grains propagate obesity? I mean, you really touched on it with the insulin and the cortisol, but maybe tie that in a little bit more. Sure. Mm -hmm. So when insulin goes up, insulin's a fat storage hormone. I mean, that's, that's part of what happens when people make a, make excessive insulin um, over time. And when your diet every day is predominantly grain-based carbohydrate. So, you know, that gets one of the reasons the keto diet diet is so popular right now. I don't agree with that wholeheartedly either, but it's popular right now because people have gone carbohydrate toxic and the keto diet is the opposite of that. It's higher fat, higher protein. Well, there, those people are going to end up going fat toxic at some point, right? Our diets are not built around extremes. They shouldn't be built around extremes as in all things in life. Moderation has, has always been a principle in, in, a, in a correct philosophy. So I like to look at the dinner plate as, as the rule of thirds. Carbs, fats, and proteins should be equally represented. Carbs aren't evil. Fats aren't evil. Proteins mm -hmm. are not evil. It's when we get into states of toxicity. And grain consumption in mass leads to a carbohydrate toxicity that drives up insulin. Insulin tells the body to store more fat. Mm -hmm. But also in that same process, when you have... When you, once you have that happening for a couple of years, your insulin receptors, the little antennas on the surface of your cells, they become desensitized, right? There's so much insulin always being produced. The insulin quits working. It's not working as effectively. So the sugar, the glucose gets stuck in the cell or I'm sorry, gets stuck in the bloodstream. So instead of being able to get in the cell and generate energy, the, the sugar gets stuck in the blood. And when the sugar gets stuck in the bloodstream, your liver has to get rid of some of it by producing triglycerides triglycerides, we take glucose to make fat. And so it's a very easy conversion for the liver to do. So if you've got excessive glucose in your bloodstream, your liver's going to make a lot of fat. A lot of that fat's going to be stored in your liver. So your liver becomes fatty. So you can develop non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that fat also gets stored around your heart and around your abdomen, which is what we call visceral fat, which is the most dangerous and inflammatory kind of fat to have. But the other part to that is that sugar that hangs out in your bloodstream changes and folds your hormones. There's a process called glycation. Mm -hmm. Glycation is when the sugar, sticky as it is, kind of wraps around the different proteins that float through your bloodstream. Well, some of these proteins are hormones like estrogen and progesterone and testosterone. So imagine that sugar coats those hormones. It makes them sticky. Then it starts to change the way they fold because all these proteins have very specific shapes. There's a law in chemistry and a law in, 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 in physical science that states function dictates or rather let me back that up structure dictates function and so if you're folding and changing the shape of your proteins you're changing their function and then you're changing the outcome which is why a lot of people with heavy grain diets have hormone disruption and, and so it can start with insulin and cortisol but it can subsequently lead to thyroid hormone dysfunction and testosterone and estrogen and progesterone well just looking at the thyroid the thyroid sets the metabolic rate for the body right it tells your dna to rev up your metabolism mm -hmm. and it runs that so if your thyroid hormone is being basically suppressed as a result of long-term glycation from excessive carbohydrate intake then you're going to gain weight because your metabolism is going to slow down because your thyroid hormone is less effective 
Right. And what Dr. Osborne is talking about is those AGEs, advanced vacation end products. And it's so crucial. And I, that's why um, the, the, the base of the pyramid of success, when I work with people, I have my four levels that I work with them. And the first for me is hormone balance, probably because I'm an OBGYN. Um, but part of balancing those hormones, one of the first things I do is I get people off the sugar and off the grains because it balances out that insulin. It helps to balance out that cortisol. It helps with the thyroid and the sex hormone. So actually, if you're watching and you think I have a hormone problem, you probably do, but it's probably not for the reason that you think you do. It's probably because of what you're eating and it's all those grains. Um, and so what Dr. Osborne is talking about as grains relate to, uh, he calls it grain obesity in the book, which I love, is this inflammation uh, that contributes to the accumulation of fat tissue. So if you're wanting to lose weight, this is one of the first things you can do. So I want to ask you, because I know that we only have so much time, and what I find with a lot of patients is they're very curious about we who walk the walk and who do this, how do we do this on a daily basis in our own lives and stay healthy? Because to them, it's a foreign concept. It's like, how do you live on the moon and be healthy? How do you live a grain-free, healthy lifestyle? So what does your day-to-day look like? And how do, you, how do you make this work for yourself? You know, it's a learning curve. Um, a lot of people embark on this journey and they get frustrated because they just don't have the knowledge base to support themselves and they don't have the patience to learn it. And think about it as any, as any class that you've ever taken and any time that you ever went to school, you didn't just walk in the class and instantly you knew the whole topic or you knew the whole subject. You had to go through, you know, six months or whatever it was and get a certificate of, hey, I learned all this stuff, right? Well, think of going gluten-free much in the same way or going grain-free much in the same way. Don't be frustrated with yourself for making mistakes in the beginning. It's a learning curve is going to be fraught with mistakes. It's going to be fraught with error. And some of that will set you back and that's okay, but you learn from your mistakes. So, so the key thing first is to, is to, first of all, if you're making this decision, I always say make it based on objectivity, make it based on lab testing, make it based on working with a good functional medicine doctor, Mm -hmm. practitioner, somebody who can help guide you to make the decisions exactly right for you so that you know that what you are doing isn't a waste of time or spinning your wheels because that will set your mind right. Knowing that you're moving your body in the right direction based on your own unique chemistry is very, very important. But number two, what does that day-to-day look, life look like? Look, it doesn't look any different than anyone else's day. It's just that I've set up my home and my kitchen and I've set up you know, how I eat my lunch. I've just set all those things up with different recipes, with different foods, foods mm-hmm. that you may not, your listeners may not be familiar with 100% yet because they just haven't done it yet. So like, for example, for me, one of the things that I'll eat at breakfast most mornings is I eat a big salad. A lot of people say a salad for breakfast. That's yes. weird. But you know what? I'm used to doing that. So, but I, I don't just eat a bunch of lettuce, right? I got spinach and chard and kale and I've got pecans in there. And then I also, yeah. I mix in a little bit of egg because I like a little bit of egg in my salad, right? So like, you know, you think egg is a breakfast food, right? So we have an egg <laughs> salad, right? Right, right. But, but not mayonnaise, right? I'm not dumping right. a bunch of soy laden, genetically modified mayonnaise in that salad, right? But so, so at any rate, I mean, you just change the recipes and, and you learn what your body likes. You learn what foods that you're going to gravitate mm-hmm. toward and that what you like, minus the ones you're allergic to or the ones you're sensitive to. And you, and you go about it. And as you go through it and as you do it, you get better at doing it. It's mm-hmm. practice, right? It's like riding a bike. You get on and you practice until you quit falling. And that's a lot like this diet change. 
But the most important thing I could really say about it is it's not what I do that makes or breaks somebody else's success in terms of their diet change. It's the commitment that they make to themselves to really stick to it and get through that learning curve. So you just got it. That's why I say it's always better to not think, is this the diet that's for me? Ah, it's not the right diet for me. I'm going to quit. Get the knowledge first so that you have the basis for making the change. Because if you don't have the basis for making the change, the diet is going to be temporary and you're going to fail. So don't set yourself up for failure. People that are successful at this understand that it is a lifestyle change that requires an education and a follow through. Remember that knowledge Knowledge gives you the empowerment to make those changes, but knowledge without application equals failure. And so you, you've got to know from the beginning that it's the right thing for you to do. And that's why I encourage you to work with doctors like Dr. Dunstan, who is doing this every day with people in the clinic, is doing this every day with people on our podcast, teaching and educating. So you've got to work with somebody who knows what they're doing, who can give you that fundamental basis to be able to make those intelligent decisions so that you can stay compliant. Right. And, and I love that quote you have in your book about your health is your is your wealth. And most of us put more time and attention into our wealth and creating it and working and making money and investing. And we're worrying about having money for retirement, but we don't invest that same amount of time and energy into our health. And I think one of the reasons this is so challenging for people is that a lot of patients and clients will say to me, well, why isn't my regular doctor telling this me this why don't they talk about this on dr oz why am i not seeing commercials for this and what people have watching have to understand is there really is kind of a systemic ignorance going on and i don't want to point fingers but unfortunately or fortunately it's an opportunity for you you've got to kind of do some digging and you've got to find out where the people are who understand about functional medicine like Dr. Osborne says, and then you really have to educate yourself. I really think that we should have this type of health education starting in elementary school um, about what, what, how does our body function and how do we need to feed it and not the school lunches that kids are getting, but really how do we uh, nourish our bodies? And I love what you said about salad for breakfast. So I tell my patients, they say, well, I don't know what to eat for breakfast because really breakfast is, is a carb and grain fest in, in the United States states anyway and I tell them soup soup is my favorite breakfast you know um you can get the vegetables in there you can have protein and and I love an egg with everything right egg makes everything better um and they say soup yes soup and you know contempt prior to investigation is one of the things that I think people suffer with they think that it's weird they think oh that's so different I don't see that on tv my neighbors aren't doing that but part of doing this real time where the rubber meets the road is willing to investigate things and try it I've had patients try soup for breakfast and they go you know what now all I want is soup for breakfast um so you really have to step outside the box. And like Dr. Osborne says, you got to find what works for you. And, and I love what you said, you know, your life doesn't look any different than anybody else's. You just set up the structures. You set up your pantry, set up your kitchen, got the recipes. And I love that you have a section in your book about, well, how do you handle eating out? <laughs> how do you handle these social situations? And that's something I work with, with people too. And you, it really comes to this place that you got to love yourself and love your body. This is the only home you get to live in for this life. 
And so care for it more than you care for the house that you live in. That could be replaced. But baby, when this wears out, you you don't get another one. (laughs) So love yourself enough and love yourself so much that it's worth it to investigate and learn and educate yourself. It's really like getting a PhD uh, in you, a doctorate in you. And I'd love it if you could leave listeners just with the top three things that you would say they've listened, they've learned, they've heard, and they say, okay, I want to do something. Three action tips that you would give them to do today. Well, that's not fair. There's more than three. (laughs) I know, but you got to pick three. (laughs) Sleep. 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 Sleep more. Um, You know, rest. Rest is so important. And so many people overdo it, overwork, um, overstress. You know, they try to do more with less sleep and it just, it catches you eventually. So sleeping is is ultra critical. Absolutely. These are all free. These are all, all these things I'm going to give you are all free, right? So sleep (laughs) is one. The other sunshine. We've, we've gone through this culture of, of, uh, of sun phobia, right? Mm -hmm. Fear of the sun. And I'm, I'm not saying go out and get a sunburn. What I'm saying is that sun does a couple of very, very critical things. One, it helps your body regulate its it's uh, circadian rhythm. So the cortisol and the serotonin and the melatonin, these very, very potent, powerful hormones that help your body heal and maintain good health are sun regulated. And if you're avoiding the sun, you're missing them. Not to mention vitamin D. Vitamin D is also a very, very big and a very, very big nutrient. It's actually a hormone or some people call it a hormone. That, that basically fights autoimmune disease. And it, we know that just a vitamin D deficiency all by itself can kill you. There are nine okay. terminal cancers linked to vitamin D deficiency. It can cause high blood pressure. It can cause obesity. It can cause diabetes. And it can cause autoimmune disease. So it's a big thing. It's a free thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's number two on the three list. But sunshine, get you know what your skin is capable of tolerating without burning every single day. Um, and then the third thing I would say, you know, it, we're not talking diet here cause we've been talking about diet the whole time. Uh, the third thing is, is you've got to move. You've got to, your body is 70% water. Water in motion is alive. Water that's stagnant, uh, festers, right? I mean, just, all you have to do is go check out a swamp, right? Stagnant water grows bacteria. It grows, it grows molds. It grows all kinds of nasty bugs and other things. Your body's a sack of water. You've got to move it. <laughs> And, uh, and, and that movement will translate in many different ways to benefit you. And one of those ways is that your lymphatic system, which is how your immune system circulates and is part of how you detoxify, does not have a heart to pump it. It has your muscles to pump it. So that daily movement circulates your lymphatic fluids so that you can detox and support strong immune health. The movement also creates less stress and pressure on your heart. The movement also circulates your water through your body. But more importantly, the number one predictive factor for longevity, if we look at all the research, the number one predictive factor for whether or not a person's going to die early is the quantity of muscle mass that they have. Medicine has even created a name for loss of muscle as people age. They call it sarcopenia. So if you have developed what doctors call age-related muscle loss, understand it has nothing to do with age and it has everything to do with lack of movement. So the more you sit, the more you look at the screen, the more you are on your keister at a computer desk, typing eight hours a day, earning that wealth while wrecking your health, the, you know, the bigger the problems are going to be. And they multiply, right? 
all disease is, is accumulated bad decisions. That's all it is. So if you just make, if you just make three decisions today, walking away from this podcast, get more sunshine, get more sleep and get more movement. They're all free. All they do, all you have to do to get them is to, is to, is to apply yourself. So those are the best three I can give you. I, I love those. And you know what I love about you is that you're so down to earth and you, you understand concepts in a big picture way and you have ability to, to translate that for people so that they really understand and they really get changed. Like your body is a sack of water. I love that. <laughs> you know, it's, you speak plain English to people. And, you know, it just reminded me of what I tell people to get them to drink enough water every day. I say, you know, your body's 70% water and you have to flush it out to get rid of toxins every day. And not drinking enough water every day is like going to the bathroom in your toilet all day and not flushing it. And then they go, oh, I get it. And so I love that you make this real world accessible to people so that they they get it it's impactful and i know that you've impacted a lot of lives today by being here with me so i want to say thank you so much for sharing yourself sharing your expertise your passion your knowledge um and just thank you for the work that you do you are a true leader and pioneer you're a mentor you you teach you just do so much for so many people and so i'm so grateful that you took the time to come and join me and share all of this with everybody listening well thank you for that and you're welcome i'm always happy to come on and, and, uh, and talk shop. I love doing what I do. I love helping people. So, but thank you for having me on and thank you for having the courage to get this information out there yourself, because what you're doing is very brave. I know I'm a, as a chiropractor, for me, it's real easy. People can call me a quack all they want because I'm a chiropractor. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the mantra, right? But as a, but as a medical doctor yourself, I know you probably fight a lot of powers that be and the message that you're delivering and that, and there's a battle in that. And I think, I think we could, we could honor that as well, because a lot of people don't realize that you actually put yourself and your livelihood at risk just by speaking mm-hmm. the truth about some things that, uh, that other people would want, would rather have silence. So thank you for that. And I want to acknowledge um, you as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you for joining me for this episode of Her Brilliant Health Radio. Hopefully you're inspired to take action on some new information you received today. A step towards the bountiful, blissful, beautiful vitality that you deserve. If you have health topics and questions you'd like addressed, please message me on my Facebook page or visit KieranDunstonMD.com and let me know. I'd love to help. Remember to share this podcast on social media and send it to your friends and family who could benefit from it too. If you love the show, please go right now to iTunes, write a review, and make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll be the first to know when future episodes are available. Thank you again for joining me. And remember, achieving optimal health isn't magic, it's science.